turn in your Bibles to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. We will today look at the entirety of this psalm. This morning we're going to look at the first four verses under one point and heading. And this evening we will look at verses 5 through 11. We'll read the entirety of this psalm. Before we read, we ask again for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word, that he would open his heart as we treat his word with reverence. Let's pray. Dear Father, we ask that you would open our hard hearts, these hearts that you have made into hearts of flesh, that you have renewed by your grace in Christ. We pray you would continue to to give us nourishment, that you would continue to speak to us for your word is life. And when we hear your word, we receive the very bread, the very water of life. We gather then to hear you proclaim your word before us. We ask that all would be said in accordance with your word and truly applied in our hearts. May we sit beneath to hear the preaching of your word in humility, acknowledging that where faithfully spoken, we truly hear you and your voice. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 63, before reading one word, this psalm is beautiful. This psalm displays our thirst and desire for God, perhaps unmatched in God's word. Let us give full attention to the hearing of Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Ascends the reading of God's word. People of God, there is a book called Sahara Unveiled. I have not read this book personally, but it seeks to portray the history, anthropology, stories associated with the Sahara Desert, that large desert land. The book describes it as being as vast as the United States and so arid that most bacteria cannot survive there. Its loneliness is so extreme, it is said that migratory birds will land beside travelers just for the company. In this barren wilderness and land of no water. In the book, the author describes dehydration and its effects when two companions were crossing the desert and their truck broke down. This is what the author says. As their bodies dehydrated, they became willing to drink anything to quench their terrible thirst. The sun forced them into the shade under the truck where they dug a shallow trench. Day after day they lay there. 
They had food but did not eat, fearing it would magnify their thirst. Dehydration, not starvation, kills wanderers in the desert. And thirst is the most terrible of all human sufferings. The the companions progressed from eudipsia, which is ordinary thirst, through bouts of hyperdipsia, meaning temporary intense thirst, to polydipsia, sustained excessive thirst, which is the kind of thirst that drives one to drink anything, including urine and blood. Radiator water is what they started drinking during the polydipsia phase. To survive, they were willing to drink poison. When it comes right down to it, the, the primal human need and function is a thirst. A thirst for water. As that excerpt from the book says, it isn't, dehydra- it isn't starvation that kills one in the desert. It's dehydration. It's water. Water is the source of life, physically speaking. We are composed of water. We need water. It is water that gives life, that God uses as a means to give that life. We need water, and we thirst for it. And when it comes down to it, with that primal need, when you are thirsting, when you're dehydrated, and you reach that point, you'll drink anything that remotely resembles water just to get it. It is that strongest of emotions, and that's what the psalmist uses here to convey his desire for God. As he says in the psalm, as in a dry and weary land, think of the Sahara Desert where birds will land by you just for company, where there's nothing around, where there's nothing to drink, the ground so dry that it would soak up all water immediately as if there was no trace. That's, that's the psalmist's desire for the Lord, a thirst, a thirst for him. When it comes right down to it, our bodies will be willing to trade all riches Anything in the world in the middle of a Sahara desert for a glass of water, we have that thirst. As believers in Christ, as God's own people, what the psalmist displays here is that he would be willing to dispose of everything else for a glass. And I put it this way, a glass of God. For him. As he thirsts, as the psalmist says, my soul thirsts for you. It is that very illustration, that primal instinct to show the thirst of God. And we'll look at that in this psalm. I'm borrowing from another's outline. This is a, a three points from a commentary I read, and that is God, my desire, and that's the first point. That's what we're going to look at this morning, followed by the second point, God, my delight, in verses 5 to 8, and then God, my defense, in verses 9 through 11. We'll look at both those this evening. Today, we just look at one point, right? It's easy enough. One point to see. Desiring God. God, my desire. Someone once said, There may be other psalms that equal this outpouring of devotion. Few, if any, that surpass it. Few, if any, psalms surpass the overflow that the psalmist shows of his devotion to God. And I've wanted to go through this for several weeks. We've been sort of toying with this. And I guess in one sense you could say you're always toying with desiring God in worship, because that's what we're doing here. But specifically, as we've gone through Exodus and the end of Exodus, as we've looked at church membership the last couple of weeks, what we've been toying with is this desire for God. At the end of Exodus, we saw what Moses desired, to see the glory of God. He was willing to to even be obliterated and destroyed by the power of God so that he could catch a glimpse of who God is. 
who was willing to then approach God in that way. He desired God. He, he needed God. And that's what we see here in this psalm. As we talked the last few weeks about church membership, what we've been really saying is that it's more important than just being a member of a local body that's required by God, but what we're after is fellowship with God. We desire him. We thirst for him. And this psalm brings that out explicitly, that we desire God himself. Let's look at it in this psalm. There's a certain boldness to this immense display of devotion that the psalmist, likely David, says. Verse 1, it says, O God, you are my God. This isn't a redundant statement. It's not just unnecessary information. What he's saying is God isn't just some God. He's saying God isn't just a God, nor is he saying God is the God, which is true. That's implied in what he's saying, but that's not what he's saying. He says, God, you are my God. He's saying, God, you are mine, and I am yours. That's a bold statement. That does not claim ownership like a slavish ownership. That that proclaims a depth of devotion. The level of the relationship, its exclusivity, that he is one of God's people. And by that, being one of God's people, God is his own. This is like us saying that of our own family. It's like saying that of your spouse. This is like me saying of my wife, Lauren, you are my Lauren. Now that doesn't mean I'm saying I, I own you like a slave. It's describing that devotion, that exclusive relationship, that love. And that's what David likely says of God here. The psalmist is saying that of God. This is my devotion to you. This is your devotion to me. That you are mine. That I am yours. That is what we say as God's people as well. God, you are my God. God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. This shows the depth of the relationship. The verse says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And then it gives the the illustration that we've already been examining as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. This likely describes, likely I say, because we can't be dogmatic here, but it likely describes David's own present situation. The heading of the psalm says this psalm was penned when David was in the wilderness of Judea. So likely David is there in the wilderness, seeing the barren land, seeing the no water, and reminding himself that just as this land is barren, even perhaps as his own body craves water and thirsts, That doesn't hold a candle to what he thinks of God. And that reminds him, that primal desire that the the book we began with said was for thirsting for water is actually eclipsed by something else. His thirst for God. That's what eclipses it. The psalm takes thirst, which is for us a negative thing. Thirst implies a need. It's a negative. Without it, we will die. And he uses that exactly as an explanation to show what God is to us. Without him, we will die. Without him, we cannot survive. We need him, and it's not just a necessity. Not everyone here likes water. Some of us don't like to even touch water. What The point there isn't that we would just drink it because we know it's good. What psalmist is describing here is a strong desire that that's what he wants is God he wants to desire God God is our desire 
The point of the message this evening, the point of this psalm and these verses is that our greatest desire must be for God alone. Our greatest desire must be for God alone. And as water quenches thirst, there is only one being that can quench the psalmist's thirst, and that is God himself. It is no mistake that God's word often likens God in some way or in some relation to water. It is no mistake that Jesus picks up that very theme and says that he is the water of life. That to drink of him means you will never thirst again. That is what he tells the saints in the New Testament. I am that water. And so we can say in God's word, it's, it's one story, it's all tied together. We can say the answer of the thirst of David is Jesus Christ who says and completes this request, you thirst I am that water. Your soul is thirsting for the living water of life. It's me. It is Christ. The answer to our thirst. Nothing else satisfies that. Have you ever thirsted for God? Have you ever experienced that? It's not as if we experience that every moment of every day, as if we walk around in that way, but we do have a heightened times, heightened locations and times of it. Where we experience that strong thirst, something like David expresses here. Think of it as like a time where you really need to commune with God. You really need to talk with God. And there was some interruption and something got in the way. And, and you were just devoted to getting back to that. And you would even fight sleep just to be able to talk to him because you needed to speak to him. Not just to unburden yourself, but you needed that relationship. You needed who he is. You thirsted for him. Have you ever thirsted for his word? You have to read it. I have to read God's word for my life. I need to commune with him. I need access to him. I need his word. I need to hear the preaching of his word, which is the, uh, another means God has ordained for it, not only in the word written, but in the word preached, which is his word written, proclaimed, and applied to our life. Do we yearn for that? Do we thirst for that? If your answer isn't immediately, yeah, I, I do that all the time, I would say most of us here would probably not say that. And yet, as true Christians, our response then isn't, oh well, it's to then say, I want this. I want to desire God like that. I want to thirst for him in that way. And so the, the reason behind that simple question, have you a thirst for God? Is to remind you that you need it. I'll use that illustration of water. I'm very bad with drinking water, as I should, throughout the day. And when you read how much water you're supposed to drink throughout the day, it's, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. You know, I, can't even, I can't even take in that much water. How is that the appropriate amount? See, what you need to do is you need to be reminded of it. You need to have someone say, perhaps an amazing wife, who will say, have you drank enough water today? It's just an illustration that that, that doesn't happen. Have you had enough water today? That's, that's what this is. You thirst for God. You need him. You need that water, and you need to cultivate that in your life. This is the way David feels. He feels this sort of longing. It's like a feeling when you're away from a loved one, perhaps a spouse, a family, a friend. There's a longing to be with that person. It's a longing so intense. It's like a sickness, and we have a term for that. There's a homesickness, a sickness for home. You need it. 
You desire it. You're not there and you want to be there. And the only thing that relieves that ultimate burden is to get back. To go home. Using that terminology then, what David's describing here is a homesickness for God or a God-sickness. A longing to be there with him. Likely he is separated. Likely he is in a wilderness. He is not near the sanctuary of God. He's not in that place where he can visibly see that representation of God's presence. And yet David knows enough to know he can still commune with God and does even there in the wilderness. God is there and he communicates with him. And so verse 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Likewise, David is reminding himself of these times when he was in the sanctuary, when he was home, when he was there and sensed God's presence, but now he knows that he still communes with God. God is everywhere present. You see, based upon that heading of the psalm, many commentators like to go another step and say this is likely when David was in that wilderness fleeing from his own son who was seeking his life, Absalom. Again, we can't say that dogmatically. It, it's, there's, there's plausibility to that. We can't be certain, but we do see that his situation is not a great one. We'll see that tonight as you get into the latter half of this psalm, verse 9. So even if we can't say specifically what this was in the psalmist's life, he says that there are those who seek to destroy his life. And so in a time of horror, in a time of difficulty, his thirst isn't to get away from it. And his request to God isn't, remove me from this. Rather, it's I thirst for you. And that separation, even from your sanctuary, even from the place where you come to this earth in that Old Testament context, he longs for it. He longs for God and thirsts for him. It's important that we see everything in the psalmist's life is not great. It's a bad situation. It's one of tossing and turning. We'll see that tonight. It's important for us just to know now that he is seeking and desiring and thirsting for God when we would be otherwise distracted. Distracted by the burdens. And so we learn to direct our eye of faith to God in the worst of circumstances when we are struck in the wilderness. Notice what the verse says. It ties very nicely to what we looked at in Exodus when Moses requested to behold God. You see this in the second half of verse 2. What did he see that was so pleasurable? What does David see that he wants so much? Beholding your power and glory. So he is thirsting for God, and I think we could be more specific than that. He is specifically thirsting for the power and glory of God. Beholding the majesty of God in his glory. You see that this is not just what God can do for David. What he beholds, what he wants so much, what he's thirsting after is the magnificence of God in his name. When we partake of that magnificence, when we thirst and receive that, that is the highest desire. It eclipses everything else. That's what he longs for. Often we can get uncomfortable using such intense language. Often we can get uncomfortable when we read things that are almost like love expressions or love notes or love letters to God. I admit there's a certain love letter, love song type expression we see today that isn't appropriate. But that 
that we should just throw out. This psalm shows us the appropriate extension of what is almost like a love letter. A yearning that is, as that commentator said, almost unmatched in the rest of God's word as an expression of desire for God. I want to give us an example of this from God's own word. In Mark chapter 14, verses 3 and following, we read an account. This is the account. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Pause there. Why was the ointment wasted being poured on God's head? What a waste, is what some there said. They said, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. You always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What this woman did, the Gospel of John reveals that it was Mary who did this. She displayed such an intense desire to worship God that she took an ointment, a a perfume that was almost a year's wage. That's how expensive it was. Okay, everyone, think of your year's wage. Think of having that in a perfume bottle and think of breaking it and dumping it on someone's head. To take almost a year's wage to anoint a man, but who wasn't just a man. And so the disciples, especially Judas, the other Gospels would say it was Judas who specifically critiqued her. He had been stealing from the money that was given to Christ, so it makes sense that he'd be upset with this. But it does say the disciples, which means there was likely other than Judas who agreed with him and said, what a waste, this could be given for the poor. But this intense outpouring of devotion, this intense desire for God to take a year's wage of a precious ointment and pour it over him. Gone in an instant. It's gone like that. It just is not there anymore. All that you worked for. So worth it. Pour it on one with whom you thirst and desire. One commentator says as well, the longing of these verses is not the groping of a stranger feeling his way towards God but the eagerness of a friend, almost of a lover, to be in touch with the one he holds dear. You see, the imagery, the lover imagery, that we would associate with our expression of it isn't appropriate, but that unique relationship, the depth of a loving relationship, that's what's meant. There is no relationship more close or more dear. And now look at verse 3. Why is it good for the psalmist to seek God in this ravenous way? He says, because your steadfast love is better than life. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. We need to be instructed here. We need to be instructed here because most of us do not operate according to that belief. 
And that's across the board. And I can say that with that much authority, that that's the case for us all, because we are all sinners. There are so many other things vying for our attention. There is so much about life that we hold so dear. Now, some of us are further along that maturity than others. Some of us feel that just in the passing of our ages, less and less, and can really easily see, though they don't see this perfectly, that the love of God is indeed better than life itself. And so the challenge is even greater for you young people who have all of your life set before you. Is the love of God better than life itself? The psalmist says it is. Your steadfast love, knowing the love of God is better than life itself. We could actually say it is the true life itself. To be loved by God is to have true life. To be separated from God is the definition of death. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life itself. Life is found with God. And all those things that seek our attention, like money and sex and power, to quench a spiritual thirst, and that's where we go with it. We need to quench this spiritual longing and thirst, and so we fill it with the things of the world, but that will not quench it. It is only God. And so we have two things to do here. One, we need to apply it, and we need to be hard on ourselves, and we need to say, where am I putting other things in the place of God? Where am I not thirsting for him and thirsting for something else that needs to be cut off? That's what we need to do. The other thing we need to do is just bask in it. And I know we make that point often, but that's what God's Word does. It allows us opportunities to just sit in the praise of the Lord, to know the truth of it, to see it. And so the psalmist makes an oath. He makes an oath in verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. It's in the hands. It's in the name of the Lord. That's the purpose of life. And so seeking to quench thirst with other things turns out to be anything but anything else is spiritual poison. It's radiator water, water laced with antifreeze. It's urine or it's blood in the middle of a wilderness that will not quench your thirst. It will destroy. It will harm. It is only Christ. It is only our God. It is only as we are led by the power of the Spirit to God who is our Savior, through them to the Father, that we are forgiven and made whole and adopted. It is in Christ, our mediator, the living water. And so we can say with verse 4, with that understanding, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. David could say that when what he knew about God's name was not to the extent that we do. We know so much more about who God is, the Trinitarian Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is who we know, and it is in Him that we live, that we find our blessing in whom we bless. And so the point of verses 1 through 4 is quite simple. Desiring God. Is God your desire? Desiring God. How do you do that? Right? That would be the all-important question. How do you desire God then? Well, I would ask that and respond to that question with a question. When you want to get to know someone, what do you do? When you want to get to know a neighbor, what do you do? Well, you've got to go talk to them. You've got to invite them over. You've got to make an effort. You've got to pursue them. 
God's word is full of calls and commands for us to pursue God, draw near him, speak to him. What's the purpose of dating? We don't like to say da- dating, you know, it's such a, it's a wonderful term, it's dating. It's, we don't want to say they're meetings, but that's what they are. They're meetings, in essence, to draw near to someone, to see what's this person all about. And then through that time, as you're getting to know this person, you want to get to know this person in more and more situations, in more and more ways. And so you arrange your meeting locations in different places, doing different things, and see what's this person all about. Do we not do that with God? Bringing to him in every situation our concerns and our needs, and not just that, but in every situation thinking of him. How do I glorify God here? How do I glorify God in eating? Because God's word says, whether you eat or drink, you do all to the glory of God. How do I do that? I've got to be mindful of him. I've got to think of him. That's what we're called to do. How do you interact with God? How do you do these things? Prayer, devotions, church. Now, we don't like those answers. Those are the Sunday school answers. But they became Sunday school answers for a reason, because they're the right ones. Prayer devotions, church, things often, though we think we know them, are so neglected. That's how you draw near to God. And it's important to say just going through motions won't help you. You will be as successful getting to know your neighbor or beginning to date someone when you don't really care or put your full effort into it. You will be just as successful in building a good relationship with them as if you did the same with God. Not a real effort, not a lot of care, not a lot of pursuit. Well, then you will not have that spiritual outpouring that David has where he thirsts and yearns for God. But we will have that, and we say that with certainty as we seek him, as we pray that we would desire him more and more. This psalm is for those who want to want to desire God. Not necessarily for those who automatically do No one automatically does. It's a life that's transformed. So start first with prayer. Ask God. Ask to thirst with God. Devote time and attention to that, to pray, to devote yourself to him, to draw near to him. Second, do it. Well, that's a pretty easy application. Do it. Do devotions. Do church. Do prayer. Why do I say that? It's because, and I place myself in the same category, it is so difficult To cut that off, like anything else, what is the first thing that seems to fall out of all of our schedules, prayer and devotion time? I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate times in which you can't or have to adjust, but that's the first thing to go. What does that say about a thirsting and a desire for God? So do it. Get up early. Get up earlier or have to stay up later or devote more time to it. Do it. God rewards the efforts we make to draw near to him. His word says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. It's a promise. So do it. Turn off the news and go to the maker of the news. And third, be creative in finding time. Be creative. We often show so much creativity for hobbies and various things. We often find time for them, or not just hobbies, but other things, daily routines and things. We carve out time. We're creative to find it. 
or if it's a hobby we're interested in, if it's, if it's whatever it is, if it's hunting, if it's cars, whatever, we set aside the time and we're creative. How do I find out how to do this? We approach something we want to learn, and then we put all of our effort into it, and we look things up, and we get books, and we spend money, and we spend time, and we pursue it. We're so creative in it. Can we not show the same creativity, the same devotion to God that we would be creative to seek Him? If you want to build a porch or something and you don't know how, what would you do? If you were real committed to this, you would likely find someone who knows about building porches, who is more of a carpenter and gifted in that way, and you speak to them, and you pick their mind, and you talk to them. And then what you would likely do is you would research it. Today, it would, in the past, it would have been you gone to a library and looked this up. Today, you get on your device and you YouTube someone building a porch, and you actually watch them do it. That's how we find things out. We are creative. We go and we do it and pursue it. And yet so often what we do is, boy, how do you draw closer to God? And then you just sort of, I don't know, walk away. Why, why not ask others, those we know, those we respect, those who are more mature in the faith, who have lived longer, and ask them, what do you do for good devotions and prayer life? Seek out materials, right? If you were going to build that porch, you'd seek out materials. You'd seek out instruction on it. Well, there are plenty of resources about learning to desire God, about drawing near to Him, about growing in holiness, about understanding Him. One way to start would be to find resources and good books about the attributes of God. Get to know Him. Learn who this being, this perfect being is, and as you reflect on this perfect being, you are more able to thirst for him because you understand him more, you know him more. Dive into the depths of God. And also know this, when and where do we often draw most closely to God? Trials and the wilderness. And I don't say that so that we then pursue trials. I say that so that we don't neglect them. That we don't waste them. In a trial and a difficulty in the wilderness, you can do what David did and thirst for God and seek to thirst for him and draw near to him because trials make us fertile soil. On the soil's standpoint, it's not very pleasant to be rototilled up, to be tilled what does that imply? It implies force. It implies the use of hard metal objects and tools to turn you over, to make you fertile, to make you loose and receptive to whatever is going to be planted, and that is what trials in the wilderness do for us. Make us able to produce a crop, and that crop being devotion to the Lord, that's what we're after. That's our desire. This psalm displays what we must live for our greatest desire for God alone, a deep thirst for God. And if you don't think you have that thirst for God, this psalm is for you. It's to seek out Christ. You have an intercessor well-equipped to take you to God. Nothing is lacking in Christ, in that water of life. Look to him and thirst. He will quench it. Tonight we will look at what the quenching of the Lord looks like and in the satisfaction he gives. But today, for this morning, desire God. Seek, desire him. Amen. Let's pray.
Dear Father, we bring before you a request that we know is pleasing to your ears, one that is good and right, and one we cannot bring about ourselves. Let us thirst for you. Create in us a desire for you. We know that this does require devotion on our part. This does require us to draw near. It requires us to seek you. It requires us to pray, to to attend worship. It requires devotions. And it will require a lot of practical changes in some of our lives. It will require a restructuring of sleep, perhaps. It will require doing and coming up with disciplined activities for us to do so. And yet we pray that that would not stand in the way, that we would seek to do them. And yet... May that never eclipse the true answer that we by ourselves and by our own efforts cannot draw near to you without you granting, without you blessing, without you actually working it out. We know that your word that we have just heard is means that you used, that the Holy Spirit uses to transform us and so do it. You are the one who works. Work in us this transformation to desire and thirst for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.